all aboard. It's the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. As I always say, grab your ticket, get on board, put your seatbelt on, enjoy the ride. Because this train is going to take you on the sports journey like never before. So once again, grab your ticket, get on board, put your seatbelt on, and enjoy the ride. It's the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. That show is about to begin now. This is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! Welcome to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. You guys seem just as excited as I am to be back, bring you this uh, recorded live in front of a studio audience. So that means I got a lot of people on my train, and I am happy that happy that you are here with me, uh, as we have a lot to catch up on. And first thing I'm going to do, I normally don't like to do this, but we have some sad breaking news in the world of college football as coaching legend Terry Donahue, the winningest UCLA and Pac-12 football coach, dies at the age of 77. Uh, Terry Donahue, the winningest coach in Pac-12 conference and UCLA football history, who later served as general manager of the NFL San Francisco 49ers, died Sunday. He was 77. The school said he died in at his home in Newport Beach, California, after a two-year struggle with cancer. Donahue has the most wins, 98, of any coach in Pac-12 history, and also the most victories, 151, in UCLA history. He coached the Bruins from 1971 to 1975, working as an assistant under Pepper Rogers and then Dick Vermeer before taking over as head coach at 31 and serving from 1976 to 1995. His first job out of college was an assistant to Rogers at Kansas for one season. Donahue was the first to appear in a Rose Bowl game as a player, assistant coach, and head coach. The Bruins won the New Year's Day game in 1983, 1984, and 1986 during his coaching tenure. He was the first college coach to enter to earn bowl game victories in seven consecutive seasons from 1983 to 1989. Born in Los Angeles, Terrence Michael Donahue graduated from Notre Dame High in Sherman Oaks, California, before going to UCLA. He joined the football team as a walk-on defensive lineman in 1965. He helped lead the Bruins to their first ever Rose Bowl in 1966 with an upset of previously undefeated and top-ranked Michigan State. He had a 151-74-8 coaching record at UCLA 
and a 98-51-5 mark in Pac-12 play. The Bruins won or shared five league titles during Donahue's tenure. He coached such Hall of Famers as quarterback Troy Aikman, safety Kenny Easley, and offensive tackle Jonathan Ogden. Donahue was inducted. One moment, please, as we clear out some notifications here. Okay, here we go. Donahue was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 2000. He joined the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame in 1997, and the press box at the Rose Bowl was named for him in 2013. He epitomizes everything you strive to be as a coach and as a human being, current UCLA football coach Chip Kelly said. Since the moment I stepped on campus, he's been an incredible mentor and one of the most authentic, humble, and toughest men I ever met. He loved UCLA with all he had, and I can't express how important his guidance and friendship has been for me. After retiring from coaching, Donahue worked for CBS, Fox, and the NFL Network calling games. He served as the 49ers Director of Player Personnel in 99 and 2000, and as the team's general manager from 2001 to 2005. Donahue turned down a chance to coach the Dallas Cowboys, a move that would have reunited him with Aikman in 1998. He served at, he survived by Andrea, his wife of 52 years, daughters Nicole, Michelle, Jennifer, and 10 grandchildren. Stay tuned, and I'll be back with more. Anthony Smith here with A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your conductor. Just want to let you know that this podcast is listener supported. That's right, driven by you, the listener, who wants to support. So click on that support button down there. You have three options, 99 cents a month, $4.99 a month, or $9.99 a month. We'll get your ad rent on this podcast. So click the support button. Your support will be greatly appreciated. Once again, Anthony Smith with the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Want to enhance your workout? Try the workout bands everyone is talking about. Three different resistance levels. Light, medium, and heavy. Only at www.kakeybums.com That's www.c-a-k-e-y-b-u-m-s.com www.kakeybums.com To enhance your workout, with the resistance bands that everyone is talking about. Hey, what's happening? It's Rick Thomas with Running the Table, and you already know you are on board the A-Train. Hang on for the ride. Episode. And as I promised, we got a lot to get to. A lot of college 
football action to get to as the college football season is right around the corner. So we're going to dive right on into this. So hold tight, put your seatbelt on, and enjoy the journey because we're going to take you on an interesting ride. As we dive into some college football news, as we see that Oklahoma has decided to add some more to their mix, and Oregon is not too far behind. So let's just take a look at that right now. We can pull that information up. As OU looks to have a very dominating draft class. So Oklahoma lands the top, well, lands number 25 prospect. Derek Moore, along with two defensive backs. And as the story goes, the Oklahoma Sooners had some recruiting fireworks on the 4th of July, getting commitments from three prospects led by ESPN 300 defensive end Derek Moore, the number 25 ranked prospect overall. Moore is a six foot four, 250 pound defensive lineman from St. Francis Academy in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the number four ranked defensive end in the class and had attended Oklahoma's Champ U BBQ recruiting event in June. Xavion Bryce and Robert Spears Jennings also committed to Oklahoma on Sunday as defensive backs. Bryce is a six foot two, 170 pound athlete from Arlington, Texas, and Spears Jennings is a six foot two, 195 pounds from Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Both also played wide receiver in high school. The staff also added ESPN 300 offensive tackle Jacob Sexton, the number 246-ranked recruit on Saturday. Those four commitments over the past two days give Oklahoma 12 total commitments and six ESPN 300 commitments in the class, in the 2021 class. Also, and I'm probably going to butcher this name, so don't laugh at me. I said don't laugh at me. That wasn't funny. I ain't even pronounced the name yet. You guys are already laughing. Y'all find that funny, don't you? Okay. Y'all got jokes. Anyway, J2 Tamalua, number four ranked prospect in 2021 class commits to Ohio State Buckeyes. So it looks like OU's not the only one that's shooting off some recruiting fireworks. Ohio State got a late addition on this 2021 recruiting class on Sunday when five-star defensive lineman JT, I'm not going to butcher that name, committed to the Buckeyes. He is the number four ranked recruit overall in the 2021 class and did not sign his national letter of intent or announce a commitment in February on signing day. He held out until now, 
taking visits to Washington, USC, Ohio State, and Oregon. He had Alabama in his top list with the others, but dropped the Crimson Tide within the past month to focus on the remaining four schools. He is six foot five, 280-pound defensive tackle from Eastside Catholic High School in Bellevue, Washington, and he is the number one defensive tackle in the class. Tamar Lua had kept his recruitment close to the vest, so it was unclear if or when he would make a commitment throughout his process. It seemed as though Alabama at one point had a good shot at landing him, then Ohio State, but Oregon kept making its presence known as well until the Buckeyes ultimately won out. Adding him to the class gives Coach Ryan Day three five-star prospects with defensive end Jack Sawyer and the number one ranked prospect overall and running back Travion Henderson, ranked number nine. The staff now has 18 ESPN 300 commitments in the class with 15 ranked in the top 150. It's the 10th straight class that Ohio State has had at least one five-star commitment going back to the 2012 class. It's the second straight class with multiple five-stars committed as the staff signed four five-star receiver Julian Fleming and deep offensive tackle Paris Johnson Jr. in 2020. The coaches are on track to push that five-star streak even farther as quarterback Quinn Ewers, the number one recruit overall, is already committed in the class in the 2022 class. Keeping with the college football news on the recruiting scene, Oregon football keeps adding to impressive class, securing commitment from ESPN 300 offensive lineman Kelvin Banks. ESPN 300 offensive lineman Kevin Banks committed to Oregon on Sunday, choosing the Ducks over Texas, LSU, Texas A&M, and Oklahoma State. Banks is a six foot five, two hundred ninety pound offensive tackle from Summer Creek High School in Houston. He's the number twenty nine ranked prospect overall and the fifth best tackle in the class of twenty twenty two. Banks was initially set to announce a commitment on July 24, but moved his decision date up to July 4 and is now part of the Ducks class. Yep, the Ducks and all 500 of their different uniforms. <laughs> yeah, I amuse myself sometimes. He spent the month of June taking visits to all schools in his top list, including Oregon, and those visits helped him get to a final decision. Banks is now the highest-ranked prospect in Oregon's class, ranked just ahead of wide receiver Nicholas Anderson, quarterback Tanner Bailey, and linebacker T.J. Dudley. His commitment gives the staff nine ESPN 300 commitments overall in the number 13-ranked class. And the recruiting news just keeps getting hotter. SMU lands five-star wide receiver recruit Jordan Hudson in number 12's prospecting class of 2012. 
SMU got a commitment from a five-star wide receiver, Jordan Hudson, on Sunday, making him the highest-ranked SMU prospect since ESPN started its rankings in 2006. Hudson is a six-foot-one, 190-pound receiver out of Garland, Texas High School. He's ranked the number 12 prospect overall and had a top list of Alabama, SMU, and Texas. He had been committed to Oklahoma, but decommitted in June and reopened his recruitment. Hudson took a visit to SMU in June as well as Texas, but the Mustangs ultimately won out. The talented receiver had 1,285 receiving yards and 19 touchdowns his sophomore season and followed that up with 808 receiving yards and 10 touchdowns in eight games his junior season. His commitment gives SMU six total commitments and one ESPN 300 commit. Coach Sonny Dykes and his staff were able to sign ESPN 300 quarterback Preston Stone, who had a similar offer list as Hudson in the 2021 class. Stone is from Dallas and was previously the highest ranked commitment for SMU at number 121 overall. Now Hudson joins fellow receivers C.J. Nelson, Savion Reed, as well as offensive tackles Corey Hendricks and Quentin Harris and defensive end Michael Ibunkin in the 2022 class. So there you have some recruiting news on the college football landscape as we're in the month of July and college football is right around the season. And I, as I can't think of what that guy's name is. He played for the New York Jets, but he said these famous words, can't wait. Well, if you can wait, I will be back with some more. So stay tuned. The train is building up ahead of steam. We'll be right back after these words from my sponsor. This is Tracy, host of the Moonstar Podcast, and you are listening to A-Train. Buckle up, baby, and enjoy the ride. Woo! Welcome back to my final episode, and we are going to get into some NBA talk. Yep, that's right, the NBA, the NBA Finals. I knew that would get you excited. Yeah, the NBA Finals, the Milwaukee Bucks, Phoenix Suns. Who would have thought, if you would have said that at the beginning of the year, that we'd be watching the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks, you'd probably break out in a laughter. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. That, that would have sounded funny. I mean, think about yeah, that was worth another laugh. Think about the beginning of the year, and you would have said Phoenix against Milwaukee. Milwaukee, maybe, but... Phoenix, <laughs> but now we're serious, and it's Phoenix against Milwaukee. 
So Tuesday night, game one, and there are some narratives to take a look at in this series. First of all, the Greek freak, yeah, Giannis Antetokounmpo. And that's one name you can't laugh at me about because I did not butcher it. But he is doubtful for game one, even though there's been a lot of improvement made. He is still doubtful for game one. Chances are, if I was a betting man, I would say he's playing bet 500 on it. But, uh, we do have some audio, so let's see what they're saying in regards to Giannis. Holzer said that Giannis Attentacumpo was able to get on the court for another basketball workout on Monday, but he declined to say exactly what Giannis was able to do, leaving it at just he is making progress. But he's officially listed as doubtful for game one of the NBA finals, and so without him, the Bucks are going to need to continue to try to win by committee, as Chris Middleton detailed. When Giannis is out there, a lot of times we can just give him the ball and let him go to work and, you know, let him uh, orchestrate a lot of things out there without him. Um, we have to do it by committee. But, you know, I think guys have done a great job of adjusting um, with, him out, with him not out there uh, in, you know, two of the most important games of our season. You can't. So, there you have it. <clears throat> that is what Milwaukee must do moving forward. Do what they did in the last series. It was a complete team effort, not a one-man show. Although, Chris Middleton, the one who took a lot of heat, they was wondering if he could carry the team. And he did just that. So, Giannis Antetokounmpo is listed as doubtful for game one of the NBA Finals against the Phoenix Suns on Tuesday after missing the Milwaukee Bucks' past two games because of a hyperextended left knee. Antetokounmpo was injured in game four of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks. Bucks coach Mike Budenholzer said earlier Monday that Antetokounmpo was able to do some on-court work separately from the team's afternoon practice. When asked what specific exercises and movements Antetokounmpo was able to do without pain, Budenholzer declined to answer. He's had a good day, Budenholzer said. He's making good progress. The NBA announced that because Antetokounmpo's status was uncertain for game one, he was exempt from speaking to reporters on Monday. After injuring his knee against the Hawks on Tuesday, Antetokounmpo was able to do work on the basketball court for the first time on Saturday. Before then, he had only been able to do exercises in the weight room, according to Budenholzer. 
Without their two-time MVP in the final two games of the East Finals, the Bucks were able to find a way to win behind dominant play from Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, and Brooke Lopez. When Giannis is out there, a lot of times we can just give him the ball and let him go to work and let him orchestrate a lot of things out there, Middleton said. Without him, we have to do it by committee. Bobby Portis started in both games and as a compromise, while Middleton scored a combined 64 points and Drew Holiday 60. Without Andrews Cooper, Holiday said that he felt he needed to step in and fill some of the offensive void and make up for some of the gap left without Andrews Cooper there to attack the basket. I'm trying to just continue to be aggressive, Holiday said. No letdowns, because the way Giannis plays, there are no letdowns. He's continually going to the basket, being aggressive on both ends of the floor. He does so much for this team that I just felt like losing that would be really hard for us. Milton said he is trying to support Ennis Kumpa by suggesting the big man not hurry back before he is ready. I told him, don't rush back in and put yourself at a greater risk for a greater injury, Milton said. He's a guy, he put so much time and effort into his body to be the best version of himself also. And some more NBA news. NBA PA President Chris Paul addresses critics of compact schedule, says it was a conversation before the season. And I believe we have some audio on that as well, too. So let's just listen to what Chris Paul has to really say. Every road has its Well, we're going to wait for that. We're not going to play that. That's the wrong cue. But that happens sometimes. But we'll make it no biggie. So now we have that audio from Chris Paul as he addressed the critics. Everything is always a conversation. So there you have some comments from Chris Paul. So let's just dive right on into this. So this year's NBA Finals won't just crown a league champion. It will bring to a close one of the most adorous seasons in NBA history. The league pushed through the COVID-19 pandemic with a shortened offseason and a 72-game compact schedule, only to have the playoffs marred by a slew of injuries to some of its most high-profile players. On the eve of Game 1 of the Finals on Monday, Phoenix Suns star Chris Paul, who serves as the president of the National Basketball Players Association, addressed the criticism 
the lead and the NBA PA have received for the quick turnaround and how it could have affected players' health. One of the most vocal critics was Los Angeles Lakers' LeBron James. who served as Paul's vice president with the Players Union from 2015 to 2019. Last month, with stars being sidelined in seemingly every playoff series, James took to Twitter to say he predicted these problems. Paul, without directly addressing James's comments, made it clear that every player can have his voice heard when it comes time for the union to make decisions for its 400-plus members. Man. One thing about our league and its players is everything is always a conversation, Paul said during the finals media day on Monday. There's a ton of guys on the executive committee who are working hard on things right now as we speak, day in and day out, traveling. I wish you guys knew all the things that are going on. So decisions that are made as far as playing or not playing, players are always involved in it. Injuries are always unfortunate. You hate to have them. But just like when we went to the bubble, everything was discussed as far as the players and the full body of players. Everything that's good for this guy and that guy might not be the same for that guy. But everything has always been a conversation and it's going to continue to be that way. So if people don't like it, then, you know, everybody has the same opportunity to be a part of all of these conversations. The conversation among the Suns heading into game one was how they would prepare for the Bucks should Milwaukee's injured superstar Giannis Antetokounmpo out for the last two games of the Eastern Conference Finals with a hyperextended left knee not play. The pressure they put on the paint has been pretty consistent, even with Giannis out. But you see a different way of doing it with Drew Holiday attacking and Brooke Lopez diving, Suns coach Monty Williams said. That's been something that we have to respect. You have to respect them anyway with Giannis getting into the paint. In transition, in isolation, when he dives in the pick and roll, especially with Chris Middleton. So without Giannis, there seems to be a different way of attacking the paint. And then all their guys that crash the boards. So they haven't stopped playing the way they want to play. The pressure on the paint has been pretty consistent in the playoffs. Even with Milwaukee's two-time MVP, in the lineup, the Suns still had success against the Bucks during the regular season, beating them twice, 125-124 on February 10th, 128-127 in overtime on April 19th. Despite Antetokounmpo averaging 40 points on 60% shooting with nine and a half rebounds in the two games, Suns center DeAndre Ayton said he is preparing for the finals as if Antetokounmpo will be back on the court sometime in the series mainly just matching his physicality and, at the end of the day, just competing, Aiden told ESPN during a segment on the jump. You cannot back down from the challenge. Just knowing his foul awareness, being the first man on defense, and just showing him a walk. At the end of the day, you want to stay between him and the ball. It's just being ready for the challenge. And on one 
final note before we pull this train into the station. The Atlanta Hawks reach a deal to remove interim tag from coach Nate McMillan's title. The Atlanta Hawks general manager Travis Shelnick announced Monday afternoon that the team had an agreement in place with coach Nate McMillan to remove the interim label from his title and keep him with the franchise going forward. Sources told ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski that the deal is for four seasons for McMillan, who led the Hawks to the Eastern Conference Finals. We're just drawing up the contract, Shelnick said on a conference call with reporters to wrap up Atlanta's season. We've now worked together for four months. We've had a good working relationship, and I'm excited he's going to be our head coach moving forward. When McMillan was picked by Shelnick to replace Coach Lloyd Pierce at the beginning of March, Atlanta was 14-20 and 20 admired in 11th place in the Eastern Conference standings. The Hawks then completely turned things around, going 27-11, to close out the season and claim the fifth seed in the East. But Atlanta was only a prelude, but that was only a prelude to Atlanta's stunning playoff run, which saw it knock off back-to-back higher seed opponents with the fourth seed New York Knicks and top seed Philadelphia 76ers before pushing the Milwaukee Bucks to six games, even with star guard Trey Young hobbled for half the series. From the first day when he took over as interim coach, we both made the decision we're going to get to the end of the season before we talk, he said. The season obviously ended the other day, and we started talking to his agents yesterday and came to a deal this morning. McMillan entered this season having spent 16 years as an NBA head coach, five with the Seattle Supersonics, seven with the Portland Trailblazers, and the previous four with the Indiana Pacers before being hired as Pierce's top assistant. His ascension marked a turning point for the Hawks, though, and presented an opportunity for McMillan, 56, to both prove he could connect with a young group like the one the Hawks have and find the postseason success that eluded him for much of his career and to do so just a few hours from Raleigh, North Carolina, where he grew up and attended NC State. It's truly a blessing, McMillan said, of getting the opportunity in Atlanta after the Hawks lost game six to the Bucks on Saturday night. A lot of my family members and friends and my pastor, you talk about when one door closes, another door opens. I didn't expect this to happen, but it did. It's just a blessing. It really was a blessing. I really didn't look back on what had happened last season. My focus was on once I got this opportunity to come down and try to help Coach Pierce, and then when the opportunity presented itself for me to coach this team, to try to make it better. That was just the focus this entire season, trying to make it better here for this organization. It really was a blessing. I thank God for all the opportunities and the blessings that have been provided to me this year. McMillan went on to succeed with flying colors. Shepherding alone impressive growth from Atlanta's young core while also helping the Hawks make their stunning run through the playoffs. McMillan advanced out of the first round for the second time in 10 trips to the postseason in his career. 
That lack of postseason success, however, comes with a caveat. Only one time in his first trip to the playoffs in 2001, as McMillan had a team that was seated as high as third. With Young at the controls this year, however, McMillan was able to break through and reach the conference finals for the first time as a coach. And McMillan said, getting a chance to work with such a young team impacted him in a positive way. Yes, I've become a lot more patient than I've been, McMillan said, with a smile Saturday when asked how he grew as a coach this season. I've had a few friends and a few people say, old school Nate would have done this or done that or would have responded or reacted in this way. I've been patient. I've grown for myself tremendously with this group. And I say that because I've allowed these guys to be themselves. Sometimes you try to create a culture and it's kind of your way or the highway. This season, it was more adapting to the players and how they learn in different ways to keep them motivated and lifted. So I've become a lot more patient with the players, with the game, with myself. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed this season. Now, he and the Hawks will get to see if they can replicate this success next season when they'll have the expectations on them after their deep playoff run. Sheldon also will also have to navigate the offseason with new expectations as Atlanta is no longer strictly in talent acquisition mode as it was after each of the past three seasons when the Hawks missed the playoffs. Now it's about trying to find the right pieces to supplement his team so it can contend with and potentially beat teams like the Bucks deep in the playoffs. Maybe a little bit, Sheldon said, when asked whether his approach to getting players changes after the success the Hawks had. I was joking. We had another draft workout this morning, and I was talking with one of the guys, and they were talking about a particular player, and I was like, he can't help us beat Milwaukee. So it does change a little bit. We're excited about the direction we're on, and we don't want to take steps back. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I anticipate us making deep playoff runs every year because there's different things that can go into that. But we want to continue to stay competitive moving forward in the league. Part of that success will include figuring out the future of forward John Collins in Atlanta. The Hawks then come to an agreement on a contract extension with college before the season, meaning he'll be a restricted free agent next month. Sheldon said that he was very impressed with how Collins handled that situation on the court this season and that he hopes Collins will be a part of the Hawks moving forward. I told John yesterday I was extremely proud of the way he played this year. He made a decision to go to restricted free agency last fall, and a lot of times that can impact the player. But I think what you saw from John, he wasn't out there playing for his numbers. He was out there playing for the team to win. And in a lot of cases, when guys are going into free agency, you can see the opposite. And we didn't see that at all in John this year. I think that speaks very, very highly of his character and what he's about. He's about being on a winning basketball team. So guess what? That is going to bring this train into the station. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode as I gave you some NCAA college football news. 
And also, guess you sent for the NBA Finals, which will be starting tomorrow. So until the next time, take care of yourself and each other. This train is coming to a halt. Thank you.